Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. On 882-6BR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, my guest in this episode is a former Australian Test cricketer, uh, a cricketer of some repute uh, at states and international level. He's a former state captain uh, and now making his mark in the commentary box. And I should declare from the outset, my old schoolmate, Simon Kanich. How are you? My pleasure to be here. Great Good to see you again. It is. It's great to be here in Perth again and uh, great to see you. And fitting that we're in a radio studio, I suppose, having a chat because that's where you're spending a lot of your, your time at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, having worked for the ABC for a few years covering the Test cricket coverage and then uh, have moved across with Jared Waitley, who I've learned a lot from and he's obviously a, a prominent board broadcaster. So it's uh, fantastic to be learning from him and mm. uh, watching some great cricket. You enjoy it? I really enjoy the it. Game? Yeah. yeah, no, I really enjoy it. I think, you know, there was a period where I didn't think I'd probably uh, do something like this, but having had a break from the game and, and spending a couple of years out of cricket, I think I've come back and, and really uh, felt reinvigorated and, and really enjoy watching how they go about it nowadays. The game's changed a lot since when I played, so uh, it's been enjoyable to watch. Do you still pick up the bat at all? Uh, only in the backyard with the kids, so I'm, <laughs> I'm doing a lot of backyard cricket with the boys, and I help sort of coach my oldest son's uh, under nines team, which I really enjoy. The kids are, are learning the game for the first time, and it's great to be able to try and pass on little tips to them, even though it's just all about participation mm. at the moment. It's amazing how many former players you meet, uh, you know, five years, ten years, whatever, after they've finished playing, you know, at the highest standard, and they'll say, haven't ever got the bat out of the bag. Well, like, that, you hear it a lot, don't you? Yeah, no, it's true, because when you've done it for, you know, I nearly did it for 20 years professionally, and then you, you consider all the junior cricket you play as well, it's probably like a 30-odd year period, and you get to the end, and you know when the end's right, mm. Um, particularly when you're, uh, you know, you've got family and stuff like that that changes and the whole dynamic changes. So when that happened, I realised that uh, it was nice to have a break from the game and uh, yeah. leave that behind for a bit. How do you go balancing all of that? You've got a young family, as you mentioned. Um, obviously, you're away uh, probably less now as a commentator, but it's, I imagine it's pretty tough when you're playing you know, at the highest level, which is obviously your career ambition, but balancing that with family must be pretty hard, huh? Yeah, look, I think uh, during my career there were a lot of sacrifices, and that's something that I guess family understand and, and my wife understood. She knew what she was getting herself in for when we started going out and then when we got married. So that's something that hasn't really been an issue from her point of view or, or family's point of view. But I guess once kids came along, I was nearly at the end of my career. So that didn't really impact too much on, on their early days. I got to spend a lot of time with them from the time they were born. So unlike a few of the, my other teammates who missed a lot of their kids growing up, I've pretty much been around mm. the whole time for my youngsters. And, yep. and that's something I've really enjoyed. Had them a little bit later in life and, and it's worked out pretty well. But now with work, I'm really mindful of not being away too much, even though the jobs that I do, coaching overseas and, and commentating, take me away. But when I'm home, I'm home. And I, I love that balance with having plenty of time with my young boys. They'll be putting their hand up to tag along with you soon. 
no doubt. I think uh, <laughs> hopefully I'll get a chance to take my boys to India where I coach in the IPL, and yeah. I really want them to you know to see what the rest of the world's like. They're still probably a little bit young at this stage, but eventually uh, we'll get there, and I'm sure they'll want to go to the cricket ground and hit balls <laughs> no and do, do exactly what I did. Yeah. I'll ask you about the coaching a little bit later because um, I know that's a big part of what you do at the moment. Uh, as well as uh, as commentating, but let's just let's go back to to you growing up. Um, obviously, I'm <laughs> I know where you grew up. Uh, you know you're a you're a Swan Valley uh, boy, um, born and bred West Australian. Obviously, we've lost you to New South Wales uh, at the moment. But uh, tell us about where you grew up. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Hearn Hill slash yep. Middle Swan. It's it's a bit of point of conjecture because of the bordering, but. Um, Look, I grew up out there in the Swan Valley, had a fantastic uh, childhood out in the farm, sort of 12 acres growing up, plenty of space. So there was plenty of space to play cricket, kick the footy around and do all that. And then, you know, going to Trinity College where we obviously went to school together um, from year four through to year 12, that was something that probably, you know, I look back on now and think I'm really lucky to have gone to such a great school, made plenty of great mates who I still catch up with now when I'm back in Perth. And obviously from a cricket point of view, getting an opportunity to to I guess go to school next door to the Wacker where we used to be able to go in and watch at lunch times and yeah. have access to great facilities. You know, you couldn't ask for anything more as a as a youngster. And um, I look back on all that now and think uh, I was very lucky to to have yeah. all those opportunities. I think we were, weren't we? I remember you at school though. Like it was always cricket. I mean, you were a pretty good student and you were very good at hockey as well. I remember. And you, you know, you're pretty good at when we were kicking the footy around at lunchtime as well. Obviously, sports came pretty naturally to you, but it was always cricket, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I think, um, like all kids growing up, you're watching on TV, TV, and you obviously see all the players that are out there, and, and that's probably where I got a lot of my love for the game. I, mean, yeah. I grew up loving the West Indian cricketers because they were the best in the world. So, guys like Saviv Richards and these guys probably inspired me from a young age, and I guess it was just always within me. I think. When I was about four years of age, mum and dad said that I, that's what I wanted to do. I said I wanted to play test cricket. And it's amazing what happens when you follow your dream and, and that's what you're passionate about. So, you know, whether it's cricket, whether it's something else in life that you're passionate about, you know, I'd encourage that to, to anyone that uh, has that passion. And, and I've been very fortunate mm. to do what I loved um, throughout my career. I remember your, your mum made the best lunches during the cricket games uh, I think ever I think she still goes down in history in the in the PSA division anyway as as, as being like you know most outstanding lunch coordinated well, phenomenal thing, spreads the thing about Trinity College was that we had a reputation for having this amazing spread from all the mums yep. and there were some fantastic cooks there and it was a tactic to put the opposition off yeah. because they would come out after lunch and they would Just struggle stuffed. because they had so much food. When you're that age, you don't have any discipline with food, yeah. so you're just mowing as much as you can. <laughs> And that was one of our tactics. Unfortunately, it yeah. didn't quite work as well as we would have liked. But we were... You guys probably ate too much of it as well. Oh, we did. Yeah. You couldn't uh, field after lunch. But, you, but you, you, your family generally, obviously they supported you in your, in your cricketing endeavours. But, I mean, you, was your dad a cricketer himself? Yeah, this is the, the unique part about it is I never really had anyone from the family or mum or dad's family that um, played cricket, had a cricket background because – Dad's family migrated from what was Yugoslavia in the late 30s, so they didn't know anything about cricket. It was all probably soccer. Yeah. Um, so his side, there was nothing. And then on mum's side, there was a little bit of sporting, but more footy. Yep. Um, so it was just probably my own love of the game. But like anyone, you know, to be able to achieve playing state cricket and playing for Australia, 
you need to have all that support from family, particularly when you're young and you're getting driven around to all the different venues around yeah. the state playing underage cricket. So that was something that, you know, very, very lucky to have that support right throughout my career and, and you know, up until this day. What do you remember of your dad then as being a pretty high-ranking cop at the time? Because a lot of people would know your dad, you know, Big Vince. He yeah. was a bit of a fixture around town, wasn't he? You yeah. know, legendary uh, cop in WA, um, head of homicide at one point, and, and instrumental in the still-talked-about uh, investigation into the Burnies, for instance, which was a pretty dark chapter in our history. But, I mean, as a, as a dad, were you aware of, of the sort of things that he was going out and doing in his day job? Yeah, look, um, I was really aware because I think, you know, when you've got that job, particularly when he was head of major crime squad, there would be phone calls to the home phone. And back in the day, there was no mobiles or anything like that. It was yeah. people ringing on the home phone. And we had a private number purely because of that reason of the job he did. And there would be times where the, the phone would be ringing at 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. and It's be... never good news when it rings at that time of the day. Well, particularly when it's someone threatening <laughs> yeah. you and the family. So yeah. that, that's the sort of stuff that you sort of become aware of when, when your dad's in that role. But then also, I guess, you know, I used to go over to police headquarters after school some days for a mm. lift home. And, you know, I'd go up to the office there. And, and obviously, it's a pretty high pressure, stressful job dealing with, you know, murder cases and stuff like that. So... You know, it wouldn't be a surprise when I'd walk up there and the boys would send me into the forensics room while they're all having a quiet beer just to relax after work. So <laughs> that was the sort of balance I found about that role. And it, there was a period in time where, you know, I used to think maybe that's something I would like to do. As yeah, right. You do when you, yep. you know, you, you look up to your dad. So from that point of view, um, I did think about it, but then I also knew that my passion probably wasn't quite that and it was cricket and, and that's what I pursued. Yeah. Interesting environment to grow up in though, isn't it? I imagine. It, yeah, it is because of obviously the nature of the work and obviously, you know, some of the people that they're dealing with and, and particularly the Bernie case, you know, I'll yeah. look back on that and I actually watched, there was a doco on it recently, yeah. I think last year and we sat down and watched it and it was really interesting. Your dad made a little cameo in there, didn't he? He did. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's funny because it, it feels like it was just the other day. Yeah. Um, but I, I do remember things at the time because I think I was sort of, you know, at the back end of, of sort of junior school, so to speak. And yeah, yeah that was, that sort of brought back some memories of how it all mm. unfolded. And, and you think back and you go, you know, I feel for the, the poor families that lost their daughters throughout yeah. that whole process. And, you know, dad and the rest of his team had to, to deal with all that grief and, yeah. and telling the family. So it's, it's not a great job, but, um, you know, you, you've got to respect yeah. the people out there doing those tough jobs that, that help the community. And in hindsight, you probably made the right call, yeah? Not following in his footsteps. Yeah, I think so. They were, they were big footsteps to to, uh, to try and fill, so yeah, I don't yeah. think I had a chance. Yeah. We need to take a break. Simon Kadich is our special guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories, where Simon Kadich is my special guest. Uh, just transitioning now out of out of your school days, Simon. Obviously, you know it's a big decision. You know, a lot of your mates are thinking about going to uni or whatever. Um, you decide. No, cricket's my passion and and hopefully my profession. Um, was that a big call to make? Yeah, it was back in the, the day. You know, when I first started in the WA squad as an 18-year-old, I think it was in 1993, 
you know, there was no contracts. So you could train 10 or 11 months of the year with a WA squad and not get paid a cent because it was all basically match fees. Mm. And at that point in time, I was just in the squad. So I didn't make my debut until I was 20. So from 18 to 20, I was at uni doing a commerce degree. And there was a period, I think, in the second year where I'd had enough of it because I'd obviously studied all throughout school and then was into my second year. And and I really loved, obviously, playing cricket and, and was in the WA squad. And that's what I wanted to do. But I never forget mum and dad saying, no, no, you've got to finish this off because you've got to have something behind you. And, and I look back now and think it was a really good decision because even though I never used the degree as such because I started playing for WA pretty much at the end of, of mm. my time finishing it, what it did was when I got my opportunity for WA, it had taken a lot of pressure off because I knew I had something behind me and I yep. could just go out there and enjoy my cricket. Whereas I saw some of my other teammates not have that behind them and then the pressure of playing at state level because it was so it was cutthroat back then, you know. Yeah. Not many guys getting opportunities because the Australian team was so strong. So it was a bit of a risk, but it was what I was passionate about. And, and I guess, as I said before, you know, when you are passionate about something, you'll put everything towards it to make it work. And I certainly tried to do that. But unfortunately, in sport, there's no guarantees. So, mm. you know, I look back now and think it was a big risk, but I'm glad I took it. Yeah. The, the dressing room uh, at the Wacker at the time, some fairly big characters in there. Um, obviously, you know, Tom Moody would have been around there. Damien Martin, um, a pretty young still, Gilly was there. It would have been a good time to be part of that setup, I imagine. It was. I look back on my time starting as a young player in WA and I think I was blessed to have the mentors that I did, uh, particularly Tom Moody. I mean, I felt really comfortable in the WA rooms right from the word go because there was probably four or five of my teammates from Midland Guildford who I'd been playing with since I was 16. They were all senior players that were already in that squad. So guys like Tom Moody, Mm. Joe Angel, Brendan Julian, Tim Zura was still playing for for – he wasn't playing for WA, but he was still playing for Midland Guildford. So there are a number of these guys that had a big influence on my career, taught me how to play first-class cricket, and I had the beauty of being able to play with them at club level. So yep. that certainly helped my cause, whereas a few of my mates that were my age coming into the WA team talked about how intimidating it could be at times because WA cricket then was very, very successful. Yeah, And not to say it isn't now, but back in that period, it was very successful and, and it was – daunting in a way for young guys to come into that environment but mm. I was welcomed and really enjoyed being yep. a part of it and you know those guys had a big impact on my career yeah in terms of the uh, the culture there um, what was that like I mean it's, is it is it true that you have some pretty some pretty full-on sort of initiations and that sort of stuff in there perhaps stuff that you wouldn't be able to uh, keep up these days yeah, look, in terms of the, the initiations as I'm, such... I'm being very diplomatic and skirting around it here, but you know what I'm talking about, yeah? Yeah, look, in terms of the initiations, I don't think, you know, for me the culture was all about, um, you know, the, the senior players would lead the charge for the bar at night. But yeah. what, what that did was it created an environment where we were all really comfortable in hanging around each other and yep. socialising. Yep. But also the fact was, you know, that's where we learned a lot about our cricket. So yep. we were close as a team. We did it all together. But then, obviously, when it came time to, to cricket, it was mm. business and, and the expectation was you trained hard and yep. uh, regardless of how many yeah. beers you'd had the night before, that was that didn't matter. You, you had to go out there and, and do the job. So yeah. it was a great environment. And I look back now and it, it has changed a lot now. Yeah. And there's good things about how the guys go about it. But I think back in that era, you know, there was nothing wrong with, with what how we went about it. It was just a different time. Yeah. Yeah. Um- 
you obviously had a lot to do with uh, with with some of the success here in WA. Um, our last Shield title. Uh, it's been a while, hasn't it, since we've won another one? But back at the ninety eight ninety nine series, what are your memories of that? Particularly the final against Queensland. Yeah, look, uh, you go up to Queensland, and normally, you know, teams don't have um, a great record up there in terms of being able to win Shield finals because it's all in the home team's favour. Uh, they only have to draw the game. But uh, we just snuck into the final courtesy of a draw in Melbourne, so that was something that gave us a lot of confidence, uh, having played a, a strong Victorian team the game before. But then we got to, to Queensland, and, and, you know, they've got a strong team, but everything seemed to go right. We bowled first, bowled them out. It was overcast on day one. Then we batted big and, and got a big lead, and, and they hadn't been under any of that pressure all year. They'd sort of been known to dominate games and get in front early. Yep. They were put on the back foot, and then we managed to uh, get the job done in about four days. And yep. I never forget; it was one of the best parties we've ever had afterwards. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's lasted twenty years that hangover. Yeah, we haven't hopefully been able not to win. too much longer. Um, hopefully, but it, it has been, particularly as you say, after such a, an extraordinary run of success uh, in the the decade or so leading up to that. Um, you scored a ton in that game as well, though, didn't you? Yeah, it was uh, you know amazing to be able to do that in a Shield final. Uh, mm. It had been a really good season personally, and then to get to the final and finish the job off and help us win—that's you know that's what it's all about. Particularly when you're in the top order, your, your job is to set the platform with big scores, and to do it in a final, you know, was was really special. Mm. Particularly in a winning one, um, and then that sort of led to me being picked for Australia not long mm. after um, for my first tour to Sri Lanka and Zimbabwe. So. Mm. It's amazing what happens when you do well in the Shield final and, and you know, things like that happened afterwards. And, and then not long after that, you you know, you committed the ultimate act of, of treachery uh, and, you know, and defection. Uh, a great traitor, Simon. <laughs> I'm winding you up. Uh, <laughs> oh, I can't leaving us for New South, I'm sure you were called much worse. Um, and, and at the time, there was a lot said about, uh, you know, things that were wrong. Uh, at the Wacker and the whole setup there uh, in at the professional level of, of WA cricket, uh, and you being part of that, that being a factor in your decision to to head over the Nullarbor to New South Wales. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, look, it's a good question because I never thought I'd play for another state. You know, talking about those wins and having played for six years for WA, having having played underage cricket, I never thought I'd play for another state. So. Yeah. When it all happened, it was a tough decision to make because all my mates and family were here. But then part of me also thought, you know, at the end of my career, do I want to look back and have any regrets? So that was a big part of it. Mm. Um, Like thinking, well, you know, I'm 26, 27 years of age now. If I don't do it, I'll never do it. And if I don't do it, maybe I'll look back and regret not doing it. So, you know, I made the decision. My wife's from Sydney, so I don't often tell her she's part of the reason because... She'll get a big head, but um, that played a part as well. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, probably the one of the biggest parts of it was what was unfolding at the Wacker, you know. Yeah. I had six great years where Wayne Clark was coach and he was a really relaxed character and, and I really thrived in that environment because that's what I knew. It had been that way from when I was 18 to sort of when I left and and then it changed in the space of a year. All my mates that had, had, I'd learnt from, Tom Moody and... Uh, and Brendan Julian and these guys, you know, they were all starting to finish up. Yep. And it was a totally different dressing room. We had a new coach, Mike Valletta, come in, and he was complete opposite to, to Wayne Clark. And so, you know, having done a little bit of captaincy around that period, mm. it was a totally different dynamic. Mm. 
and, and I struggled to deal with that. I was still probably really young and immature in a way as a captain. So, you know, no doubt that that played a part, and I probably could have been, uh, could have learned a lot from that. Well, I certainly did learn a lot from that period. Um, so, yeah, when I look back on it, things happen in life for a reason. And, and whilst, yeah. you know, I look back and think I would have been great to have played for WA my whole career. That didn't happen, yeah. so, uh, but I, I copped it for the first couple of years. Don't worry about that. <laughs> and you probably still cop it every now and then when you come back here, like you are now. Well, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, because I came back and finished at the Scorchers. Um, yeah, I, we sort of forgave you. I, I've been, I think I think that yeah. sort of helped smooth things over a bit because <laughs> yeah. when it happened, I got asked by Mickey Arthur, do you want to come back and spend Christmas with your family and play for us? I hadn't, I actually was going to have the six weeks off and not play yeah. at all. yeah. And then I thought about it and I asked my wife, I said, oh, I don't know how this is going to go down at the Wacker coming back after what I did. And, and she said, no, no, why don't you? And, and I'm glad, really glad I did it because I look back now and think, you know, the way the Scorchers have evolved, yep. the, the public here love them. And to have played a role in that as a senior player, mm. um, you know, I'm really glad that I was able to finish my career here and, and my final game yep. was my home ground at the yep. Wacker. And just on on the shield um, level, because you know we'll, we'll get on to um, your international cricket after the break. But uh, obviously, going to New South Wales worked out pretty well for for you in terms of domestic cricket. I mean, you know, probably haven't got time to go through all of your your stats and numbers here. But you know, there was obviously the season where you scored you know fifteen hundred plus uh, in a season, um, won a uh, a competition. With New South Wales, what was it, the Pura Cup at the time? I think yep. you know three hundred uh, at the SCG. It was a good move, yeah. Yeah, and I think you know, part of the reason was I knew I had to get better as a player, and mm. it was a challenge to go to Sydney because you grow up here on a fast, bouncy wicket, and you get pigeonholed a bit. Whereas in Sydney, the wicket was slow and turns. And plus, I also felt that you know to be able to bowl. Mm. You don't bowl much at the Wacker as mm. a part-time spinner, and I don't blame the captains for that because I did bowl <laughs> a heap of rubbish. But to go to Sydney, you know, that was something that helped develop that yeah. side of my game, and that, that actually helped me get in the test team. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it did play a big part in my development and, and yeah. you know, playing with the likes of, you know, the War Brothers and Michael Slater and Stewie McGill and these guys certainly taught me a lot about, I guess, the self-belief yeah. that those guys had in their own ability to play test mm. cricket. So. Mm. Being around that as well, not saying that I didn't have that here in WA because a lot of the guys here obviously end up playing for Australia and having great careers as well. But I think just being out of that comfort zone away from home made mm. me really grow up quickly and, and mm. uh, you know, made the most of that opportunity. Uh, we'll get on to your, um, your international career after the break, Simon, because there's stacks to get through. This is Inspiring Stories brought to you by Baron O'Day. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing the inspiring story of Simon Kaddish. Simon, let's go back to early 2000s. You were piling on the runs uh, pretty much in all forms of the game. Uh, you make your test debut. What are your, your memories of that? I mean, obviously, that's you know, that's the moment, right? Yeah. Look, it was a massive moment. I think uh, you know, everyone says it's a dream come true, and it is. Yeah. And what made mine probably even more special was that, obviously, I had my family there, but also had a couple of mates from school. I remember. Just yeah, a little. They, and they still Hammond, talk about it. <laughs> and they they made an amazing effort to come over because I only yeah. found out a couple of days before yeah. the test. So to make the trip from Australia 
two leads in uh, the north of England was a great effort and yeah. something I'll never forget. But yeah. then what made it even more special was, you know, I had the great Richie Benno present me my baggy green cap. Wow. He said, there are many more important things in life than a baggy green cap, but to an Australian cricketer, it is the ultimate achievement. Every mm. time you wear it, wear it with pride and enjoy yourself. And, you know, to have someone... Say the exact words he said to you. It's exactly what he said. And, and yeah. I look back now and think, you know, how lucky I was that Steve Waugh brought that tradition into Australian cricket. He yep. deserves a lot of credit for that because it, it makes what is a special occasion even more special when you have a, a bond with the person that presents you mm. your baggy green cap. And to have Richie, you know, a former Australian captain and legend of the game, mm. you know, that made, you know, it, it was just a dream come true. So I look back and think, how lucky was I? Yeah. Where's your baggy green now? It's in a safe uh, in my garage, locked away, because it's sort of, it's one of those things where because I wore it for 56 tests, it's got some good wear and tear to it and yeah. a lot of sweat and, and it's it's faded. And I know if it was ever gone, I can't replace that. So yeah. it's, it's done and dusted. So it's, it's tucked away and... Uh, yeah, that's uh, where it is. An extraordinary time to be part of the Australian setup, though. I mean, you talk about generations of players, uh, you know, in recent memory, that was the ultimate for Australia, wasn't it? I mean, some of the, the, the company that you kept there, you, you mentioned War, but also, you know, Gilly, McGrath, Warney, you know, there's some pretty big names. Well, and, and the list goes on. Langer, yeah. Hayden, Ponting, yeah. um, Martin. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wonder if it was tough to get into it. Well, into the well, Gillespie, you know, Brett Lee, Michael Kasperitz. There was just so many very, very good players. There were yeah. so many good players at state level that didn't even get to play a test. So, mm. you know, when I look back now and think, yeah, it would have been nice to have played a few more, but ultimately there were guys there that were very, very good cricketers, didn't even get to play one. So yeah. I consider myself very fortunate and to have played in that era is very special because, you know, a lot of them are legends of Australian cricket and not only Australian cricket, but world cricket. Yeah. Standout moments for you. I know we could talk. We could talk for the whole hour just about your, you know, your test days. But what were the standout moments for you uh, in the test side? Yeah, look, I think for me, winning in India in two thousand and four was probably the most special moment because we hadn't won there for I think thirty eight years. Uh, we went there. Ricky Ponting got injured uh, just before the the tour. Uh, he got broke his thumb in England during some one-day games, and I got an opportunity to bat at three, which helped me enormously batting at the top of the order. But also Adam Gilchrist took over as captain, and he did an amazing job. Um, we had a, a phenomenal attack. You know, Shane Warne and, and McGrath and Gillespie and Michael Kasperitz did a great job because the Indians in their home conditions are just – they're almost impossible to get out because they yeah. love batting there. And those guys, you know, they set the series up. And so for us to be able to win there in that series in 2004, hasn't been done since, is really special. So that, that's, you know, something I'm really proud of. I guess playing a part in the 05 Ashes, even though it wasn't a great series personally, yeah. you know, what a phenomenal series yeah. it was for Test cricket. And, yeah. and I look back on that series and think, you know, it was, it was fantastic to be a part of, even though, unfortunately, we, we went down 2-1. So plenty of great memories there. And, and I guess for me, yeah, as I said before, playing in that team, there's so many great players that yeah. uh, to have considered them teammates and mates now, um, I'm very lucky. Was that the series where McGrath stood on the ball? It yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, the warm-ups were set out early at, at Edgebaston and unfortunately Brad Haddon threw an errant uh, rugby league pass and it lobbed over McGrath. He sort of tried to get it over his head and then st- swiveled around, tried on the ball and that was it. He was out. Moral of that story is rugby league's a silly game. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're an AFL man. We'll get onto that in a bit later as well. But uh, 10 tonnes uh, with the baggy green on, uh, 
you know, metaphorically there. Um, obviously, helmets are more to go these days. But uh, of those 10 tonnes, is there one that uh, that you would consider your best? Yeah, look, I think everyone, when you get your first one, because it, it's confirmation that you're good enough to play at that level, that's always very special. Yep. And I guess mine was in Steve Waugh's last test at the SCG against India. Yeah. And I guess given the game situation, it meant a lot because India made 711 and we're in the field for three and a bit days. And I thought, I'm never going to get a bat here in the first place. But <laughs> we managed to hang in there for a draw. And, and thankfully, Steve Waugh went out, yeah. um, you know, in a drawn series rather than going out in yeah. a losing series. Now, a lot of people you know reflecting on your time and the, the the sort of runs that you were you were scoring at the time um think you were pretty pretty hard done by uh, to finish up after 56 tests and a lot's been said about you and Michael Clark I don't want to dwell on it too much because I know it's been spoken about a lot um but here I am not talking about it but talking about it Michael Clark do you still hold him responsible for for the the end of your test career yeah look uh I guess it's one of those things you know in 2008, when I got back into the test team, I wasn't supposed to. I I'd received a call in early 2007. I was in England. They said that we're not going to pick you again. I yep. just had a good season for New South Wales. Anyway, I was in England playing, and I thought, well, wherever I'm going to play my cricket, I'm going to just have fun and try and help the team win games of cricket. And because I was captaining at the time, uh, there was a responsibility to obviously um, lead from the front. So I did that in England, had a good summer, came home. We had a really young group for New South Wales. Young Phil Hughes was starting, Kawaja, Steve Smith, all these young kids. So it was my sort of role to be able to mentor them and and teach them, you know, about first-class cricket because they're all 18, 19 years of age. Had that summer for New South Wales, uh, getting the 1,500-odd runs. We won the Pura Cup. And then the next year in 2008, I was picked for the test team again. And that wasn't supposed to happen. So... I treat that period as though, you know, it was a bit of a bonus and I'm glad that, it, you know, I got that opportunity. Unfortunately, when it all finished, um, you know, it was on the back of what happened in the dressing room that, that had happened in sort of early 2009. Um, you know, I don't deny what happened. We had a disagreement. It was heated and, and you know, the rest is history. It was about a bit about the song, but it was also a bit about what Michael said to me in the rooms in front of my teammates. Yeah. Um, and that's something that he's since spoken about in his book. So, you know, these things happen. Just we, just for the benefit of those who, who haven't read his book, uh, can you tell us what was said? I can't because I, I think there's probably a female audience and there's a few <laughs> words that I, I can't. Bit uh, of fruity language in there. Yeah, but but it was personal stuff, yep. um, which I didn't enjoy hearing. And as a result, we had the altercation. You know, we tried to – it was something that we tried to um, – to sort out because mm. we were still in the same team together mm. moving forward. And he assured, you know, me and the, and the management that there wouldn't be any issues, um, which I think that was was the case. Um, but then from my point of view, you know, when I got sacked in, I think it was early 2011, you know, for the three previous years, I think I'd probably made the most test runs, uh, well, by an Australian. Uh, and, and I was, from all reports, only two guys in the world and made more test runs in that three-year period. Yeah. One of them was Alistair Cook and one was Sachin Tendulkar. So I felt that I'd earned my spot in the team and then he became captain and, and next thing you know, I wasn't there. So I know obviously that, you know, Cricket Australia make those decisions, but having been a captain and being a part of, you know, all that process, you normally do mm. get to have a say in, yep. in how you want to shape a team moving forward. So, you know, that, that was all part of the process and and once I realised that my career was over I got on with life and, and yeah. basically kept playing for a few years of county cricket played a, a couple of years for the Scorchers 
And I look back now and go, you know, everything happens in life for a reason. Mm. Maybe that was how it was meant to be. And I had a couple of great years with my sons growing up. Mm. Uh, obviously, you're two very different characters. And, you know, a lot has been said, um, you know, from, from you and from him. Um, you both have been involved in cricket commentary lately. Um, you both live in Sydney. I'm guessing your paths cross. You might sort of happen to be walking past each other in a corridor at a cricket ground around the country, wherever it may be. If you see each other coming towards each other, do you do you say good day? Yeah, we acknowledge each other. Yeah. That's probably the extent of and it. And that's it. Yeah. And just keep walking yeah. and then mutter something under your breath. <laughs> <laughs> no, he probably... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's uh, move on from that then. Um, you finish up your cricket at, at, at international level, but obviously, then you know, you, you still play on. I mean, you mentioned coming back for the Scorchers. Uh, was it was it ever a temptation just to say, "Oh, I'm done. That's it. Family time now. I'm out." Yeah, part of me thought that, um, but then part of me also knew that uh, it was almost, in a way, sort of giving in to what had happened. Yep. And so many people around me, you know, said, "Don't do that. It's, it's not, you know, mm. fight it and keep going." And and I'm glad I did because those last couple of years were a chance to probably wean myself off the game that I'd loved so much for so long. It's very hard to go cold turkey after you've done something for so long. Yeah. And so it was nice to be able to do that at the lower levels and then help out as a senior player. So I played some you know, cricket for Lancashire in, in England and, and was the senior sort of player there and then at the Scorchers as well. So you know, with a young group, it's always nice to be able to pass that on. I still played club cricket. Mm. I played for Midland when I came back here mm. um, during the, the Big Bash and then even in Sydney leading into the Big Bash, I'd play for my club there, Randwick Petersham. So to be able to do that and, you know, give back to the lower levels of the game was something that I really enjoyed. I always loved playing club cricket because it's where we all start. Yeah. And to be able to do that for a couple of years before I uh, finally hung up the boots was, was nice. And, and to come back and play for the Scorchers, the prodigal son returning. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, it was good for your reputation here. <laughs> well, it, it helped smooth things over a bit, that's for sure. Um, yeah, look... Having started here, you know, I've got so many great memories of playing yeah. at the Wacker. And then to finish my career here, my last game was at the Wacker in BBL3. We lifted the trophy for the first time after a couple of failed attempts in the first two years. So that was really special to think, you know, this is where I started. This is where I'm finishing. Yeah. And we've done what we set out to do as a mm. unit. And then to see this group continue that on, that probably makes me even prouder because even now I'm still involved with the Scorchers informally. Um, and I love the fact that, you know, this is something we've created from scratch yep. uh, seven years ago. And to see these young guys enjoying the success of, yeah. of how they go about it and the hard work, you know, I'm really thrilled for that. And, and I'm sure that we'll continue to do that at the Scorchers. We need to take a break. Stacks want to get through. I want to ask you about uh, MasterChef. Uh, I want to ask you about your time on the footy field, uh, your, your mysterious medical condition, and whatever else we can jam into the next uh, segment. This is Inspiring Stories uh, with Simon Kadich here on 882 6PR. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. And of all the inspiring chapters in the inspiring story of Simon Cadditch, let's talk about the ultimate, your stint on Celebrity MasterChef. <laughs> oh. How on earth did that come about? 
Well, it's by chance. I was coming <laughs> home from the 2009 Ashes and, and there was a request that came in. And I obviously have a variety of people from different backgrounds and obviously wanted a cricketer. Yeah. And uh, I don't think Matty Hayden was interested, <laughs> even though he'd published cookbooks. But I thought about it and I thought, oh, I don't really want to do this on TV, but I love cooking. So I thought, yeah. why not? And you loved eating. I loved eating. So I thought, why not? I'll, I'll take it take it on. So I went in and did it and uh, I got to the last six. But uh, I had a bit of a shocker in the, in the semi-final. <laughs> I tried to make a panna cotta in the space of about 90 minutes and you need probably a couple of hours for it to set and it didn't set under the hot uh, lights. But the one thing, the, the reason I think I got kicked out was that what a lot of people don't realise that was my cooking station was behind Miss Universe Australia, Rachel Finch, and I had to cook there for 90 minutes. So you reckon I could concentrate with Rachel <laughs> Finch in front of me? <laughs> Having said that, you could quite easily blame it on your mysterious medical condition, which is that you have absolutely zero sense of smell. Correct. And I think it's called asnomia or something like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, from memory as a kid, I, I can't so you've remember. Never, you have never been able to smell a single thing in your life? No. The only thing that I feel that I can smell is like deep heat or tiger balm, like really strong <laughs> yeah. sort of menthol potent, stuff. potent smell. But yeah. otherwise, when it comes to flowers, perfume, food, bad smells, which is probably something I'm very lucky being around um, you know, dressing rooms for so long. <laughs> I've been fortunate that I can't smell because, uh, yeah, some of my teammates uh, weren't the most pleasant smelling guys. Yeah. <laughs> I won't ask you for names, but yeah, a blessing. That, it's quite a bizarre thing. To, it's one of those things, of course, you take for granted that you can smell. But in a, in a cooking scenario, it's a pretty handy thing to have too. Well, everyone says, doesn't it affect your taste? But I think my taste is, is normal yeah. uh, in terms of being able to say whether something's spicy or salty or, or whatever. So, look, uh, that's all I've ever known. So I, I don't yeah. think I'll probably ever try and get it fixed or I don't even know if you can get it fixed. I, I've no idea. If anyone knows, let Simon know. <laughs> you you mate. You might not want to smell what's out there. Oh, particularly all with, of a sudden. Particularly with two young boys at home. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Hey, coaching wise, um, obviously you've been doing some coaching in India. Uh, it's pretty short stint coaching, uh, and you throw yourself into that chaotic environment of, of IPL in India. Um, what's that like? Yeah, look, it's been a big challenge because just because I've had a long playing career doesn't automatically mean that you know you can go into coaching and, and be successful. So. I guess, and particularly in an environment like India, where you know there is big name players, guys on huge amounts of money and, and egos, but we've got a fantastic franchise, a very grounded franchise, and and I think going into that settled environment's helped me from a coaching point of view. They've also got me to do a, a head coach role for them at, in the CPL, the Caribbean Premier League, where I've been coach, uh, head coach of um, Jumbago Knight Riders for the last couple of years. So. Having that variety early in my coaching career has been great to see how other countries and cultures go about, um, you know, preparing. It's, it is different to Australia. How we would prepare for the Big Bash here with the Scorchers is totally different how you prepare for an IPL in India because of the timing of the tournament, because of the amount of cricket that the international players play leading into the tournament. So we have to, I guess, taper that off in terms of how they go about it. But what I have really enjoyed is having time with the young Indian players and some of the younger overseas players and being able to t- talk to them, not only just about technique, but also about the mindset mm. from a batting point of view. And that's something that I've really enjoyed, seeing them try and progress their games and, and having a small part to play in their development. So will we ever see you part of the Australian coaching setup? 
Oh, look, you never say never if, if I'm asked to. Um, you know, I'm good mates with Justin Langer and, and he's always uh, asking some of his past teammates to come in and help out. He's always said it's a it's an open environment for guys to come in and have their say. And I guess in a way, you know, now there's still one or two of the guys that I'm in touch with and, and in a way you probably mentor them, you know, with things that you see, particularly now that I'm commentating on the radio. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, I played a lot of um, grade cricket with Usman Khawaja and feel that, you know, even now – Whenever I see him, we always talk about how he's going, and I've, mm. I've got a keen interest in his career and want to see him do well. So there's times where you know there's something I might pass on to him, whether he wants to take it on board or not. That's totally up to him because he's an experienced player now, knows his game. But it's nice to be able to have those conversations with guys that you want to see do well. We might have to wrap up with some some rapid fire questions here, but let, can I ask you quickly about the bands handed down after Sandpaper Gate? Uh, fair or too long? Fair. Yeah. Uh, not fair compared to ICC bands, but fair from what Australian cricket and Cricket Australia wanted to set a precedent. I think, you know, it sets a, a really strong message that we're not going to condone blatant cheating and taking sandpaper out there. And so from that point of view, I've got no problem with that. And once the bands are served, welcomed back into the Aussie team with open arms? Yeah, look, I think all the guys, everyone makes mistakes in life, so I think they deserve that chance to come back, provided that they've done everything right at the lower levels, which I believe they are all doing. They're all spending a lot of time at club cricket and and state cricket, so yeah, I think they all deserve a second chance. Best player you've played against, or best bowler you've faced? Uh, Either Shane Warne or Murley, without doubt. Okay, too tough to call between the two of them? Well, I'd probably have to say, I'd say Warney. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, Favourite ground to play on? Probably Lords. Best innings you played at, at any level? Probably I got 86 in the second innings in Colombo against Sri Lanka when we were in fair bit of strife, and, and that was probably my best ever test innings against Murali in, in his home conditions on day four of a test, I think it was. And favourite player now to watch? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I love seeing Chris Lynn smoke him when he plays T20. Yeah, okay. And will we ever see you call WA home again? You never say never. I mean, <laughs> who knows? I, I love the place, so it's, it is my home. You know, it's where I grew up, so yeah. hopefully. You never know. You'll have to uh, convince your, your New South Welsh woman wife <laughs> 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 that WA is the place to be. Simon, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating hearing some of your stories. and appreciate it. And good luck with everything in the future, your coaching, uh, your commentary, family, whatever the future holds. Thank you so much. And I have to pay a big tribute to your mum for teaching me English so that I can actually (laughs) talk properly. (laughs) She'll be chuffed. She'll be sitting there with her clipboard going, room for improvement, Simon. I'm sure there's (laughs) plenty. She's a tough taskmaster. (laughs) Thank you, Simon. Uh, That is the inspiring story of Simon Cage here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. Stuff for your face and body? It's men's skincare with a purpose. Top quality Aussie-made grooming and skincare to help guys look and feel great with no hassles. Plus, Stuff is helping mental health too. Find Stuff at Woolworths or visit websiteofstuff.com.